Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the 90s and 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily Beijing. And I am your other host, Margot Poupard. So I had to get kind of Emily is going to write her like rock history magnum opus here because like this is just an exciting episode for me. So obviously we've talked a lot about the indie sleaze era of music. We've talked about the garage rock of New York. Um, and there's a lot of intersection with what we're talking about today with a lot of other episodes we've done in the past. So in the mid to late 2000s, it's UK music just has like this huge moment. Obviously, indie sleaze, garage rock revivals. We have the Arctic Monkeys and Franz Ferdinand. You have the Kooks. You have Baby Shambles. You have this huge emphasis on top of that on British female singers and acts. And at first, it seemed to be this big emphasis on a 60s soul revival sound. And then over time, it became really eclectic. It brought in hip hop, dance, rock, all sorts of other genres. You had like Duffy, Joss Stone, Leona Lewis, Paloma Faith, Corinne Bailey Ray, Estelle. You have to mention in this list that this all gives way to the like juggernaut of a career Adele has had since these women kind of made it onto the scene. And then outside of that, you had people who didn't fit that 60s soul, you know, mood, but you had MIA and Goldfrapp and LaRue and Florence and the Machine. You, It was just British female singers really had a moment for a while. Um, are there any that I'm missing from this list other than the two that we're talking about today, obviously? None that I can think of off the top of my head. I was just I just made a face when you said Duffy because, you know, oh, my there's God, like, there is a, a slight tinge of like cursedness, right? Yes. To, to some of this. And I don't know if this is like, you know, colonizers getting their due or whatever. But I Duffy like Duffy and the two women we're talking about today have had just All sorts of harrowing shit happen to them. Yes. Yeah. So, but I'm glad that you mentioned Florence. It, I thought she was Welsh, though. 
So she is, but we're talking about UK, I guess. Oh, so you're just like, talking UK yes. general. Okay. Yeah. Never so mind. I said British, but what I mean is the UK. Because we had a few like Scottish people I think I mentioned mm-hmm. in the mix as oh, well. Oh, did so, you say um, Kate Bush or Kate Nash? Oh, Kate Nash. Yes. Oh, great example. She comes up later in my notes. So I'm glad you brought that up because Kate is a great example. Um, and actually, I'm glad you also brought up Kate Bush because she was a heavy influence on a lot of these singers to an extent. Um But the two singers that we're going to talk about in particular were often compared to one another because much like Michelle Branch and Vanessa Carlton, they (laughs) dared to be brunettes. (laughs) (laughs) And British. And British, but were completely different artists who just happened to release their biggest albums within three months of one another in 2006, and both were produced by Mark Ronson. Uh, Today, we're talking about Amy Winehouse and Lily Allen. Uh, Before we get started, Margo, what is your connection to these two artists? Well, I just want to say my alternate title for this episode was the chokehold that Mark Ronson had on the years 2006 through 2012, and then a break, and then Bruno Mars happened. And so his reign of terror, I mean, terror, I mean, I say that lovingly. uh, And then they joined forces. Um, but I saw both Lily Allen and Amy Winehouse in 2007 at Coachella. I think they were on the same stage, but just on different days. Um, wow. And that was my, I would say I was definitely more into Amy Winehouse and Mm -hmm. I liked Lily Allen quite a bit, but but mostly because I worked (laughs) at a shoe store that was like a, a British based brand and so they would give us like these compilation cds to like play in the store and one of them had smile on it and then me and my coworkers like found it on itunes and we found her other singles and then we found her on myspace and so we got into lily allen in like a different way whereas like amy winehouse kind of felt like um she just like immediately blew up so it was yeah. like really hard to get into her tent. Like we were like in the deep, deep like back of it. But it was so. But Lily Allen, we like we really walked right up to the front. You know what I mean? They had like different trajectories. But I love them both. Just sort of like I like both of their musics like in equal amounts. Like I still listen to both in like heavy rotation, especially All Right Still and Back to Black. Um, but I I really love both of them. I have a huge soft spot and think that they. I think that they made iconic music and contributed heavily to culture at their peak in, you know, between 2007 and 2009. And that they sort of got, they were like built up to be torn down. Like they were, they had a little bit in common with like Britney Spears. It felt like in the way that they were covered at the time. And it was just like not the nicest time in music or, or in culture to be a, like a woman, like a public facing woman. You brought up a lot of really valid points. I too, I, though I never got to see either of them, or uh, I never got to see Amy Winehouse in concert, and I still have not seen Lily Allen in concert. Uh, I was a huge fan of both. Like in 2007, All Right Still and Back to Black were both in heavy rotation in my CD collection. And really, the only reason that changed towards the latter half of that year was because like Juno and Across the Universe entered like my like <laughs> cultural atmosphere, right? Of course. Uh, of course, across the universe did it for you. I know, I know. Like judge away, I w- I'm well aware. Like you know, the- former theater kid gone acapella group. Like it was the trajectory, the pipeline. Call it what you will. It was inevitable. I'm so uh, surprised you haven't forced a across the universe episode on me yet. It's not out of uh, neglect. I'll put it that way. <laughs> it's out of restraint. It's and respect for you. <laughs> 
<laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. That's how I know you're a true friend. <laughs> So for me, though, these two artists meant so much. And Lily Allen was probably the first of the two I kind of got into um, and had a lot of fun listening to. But then I got into Amy Winehouse and coincidentally ended up being, you know, in an acapella group where I performed not one but two solos to Amy Winehouse songs over my college acapella career. That was really just because I had chosen to smoke cigarettes one semester. (laughs) Let's be quite (laughs) honest. I was a little more I was a little more alto than usual, but um, mm-hmm. for me, Shia LaBeouf, who she is a <laughs> Jeremy Strong whoops. <laughs> so it <laughs> Getting was into character. Yeah, I certainly did smudgy eyeliner and all. But for me, I, t- the legacy is I do listen to Lily Allen still. All right, still is such a fun album to listen to, and I realized as I was re-listening how much I still know all the words. Um, But for me, Amy Winehouse is one of my favorite vocalists of all time. If you were to tell me to put together my top five female vocalists, um, she would be up there. No, no, like protests whatsoever. Like there's no ifs, ands or buts. Like she, to me, just does it. She's still a big part of my life. Um, I was, you know, it's still one of the saddest celebrity deaths for me. And um, yeah, just can't say enough good things about her. Yeah, it was definitely up there with uh, like Joan Rivers suddenly passing of the devastation level. But I also feel like there was a point where like because Amy's story like followed like a trajectory, like a tabloid trajectory that we were all um, like familiar with. I think it like lulled us all into like a false sense of security of like, oh, it's just going to it's going to turn around. It's just it'll be fine. And that's why I think it was like even more shocking when uh, it didn't turn out fine. Yeah. And I think there, it also, the fact that it happened a few years later than I think, I don't want to say people would have expected, but I guess in the sense of like when people associate her biggest troubles and trials with abuse issues, eating disorders and other, you know, things that kind of were a big part of her life, other demons, uh, by then, I think she was still in the public eye, but not quite as much as she had been just two or three years prior um, because she had not released any new material. And so I think it became a surprise, both for the reason you said that we all thought there would be a point in which she would, you know, go back and 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 be rid of those demons. Uh, and at the same time, um, it just wasn't on our radar, really. And that's that's really saying something in, in a fucked up way that for us to have, you know, kind of not forgotten about her, but I think like for a split second, you know, some other celebrity had kind of taken the role at that time of being the one. And I wouldn't know who, but like. I'm going to actually, I would think it's more of like the way that they covered her was so not in a positive light for so long. Yeah. You don't. And it sometimes turned out to be like hyperbolic or like not totally yeah. the truth. You like kind of lose faith in the way that they were reporting on her, right? That's kind Ye- of more along the lines of what I think. You make a valid point. And I think the other thing is it wasn't cer- it wasn't fully in our landscape at that point. But I think 2011, there was maybe some some beginnings around us realizing the way we were portraying celebrities was not you know, the way we almost rooted for their demise. Um, and I, I, it's, it was nowhere near where it is today. Like a lot more discourse has happened, but I do think there might've been a slight shift in that at that point. Mm -hmm. So, uh, (laughs) before we started recording, I will tell you all, we, we had to, we tried cutting this down as much as we could, but these, both these women have had 
rich careers, really interesting ones. Some some sad things happen, but really just like it, it's we have to kind of get into it all a bit. So before I do go into Amy's life, I want to preface that I will briefly discuss her addiction issues because it does play a big part in her career's demise in life. But I'm not trying to linger. And I also know that she dealt with self-harm, eating disorders, and domestic violence. And I chose not to dive into those. All of this leads into a recommendation that if you want to learn more about Amy's life and that sad, unfortunate side to it, you should watch the A24 documentary, Amy, as it does go into more details and serves as a big part of my source material. So Amy Winehouse was born September 14th, 1983 in Gordon Hill and Field, England as Amy Jade Winehouse. Her father is Mitch Winehouse, a window panel installer and taxi driver, and Janice Winehouse, a pharmacist. Amy grew up in the North London area, specifically Southgate, which is a predominantly Jewish neighborhood, and she attended Osage Primary School and Ashmole School for secondary school. She attended a Jewish Sunday school, but didn't really consider herself religious, especially by the time she was an adult. And as I was doing research, I actually learned that Rachel from S Club 7 also grew Rachel Stevens grew up in Southgate as well in a, and grew up in a Jewish family, and they both attended the same schools, although Rachel is six years older. Growing up, music and in particular jazz and the classic standards were a big part of Amy's life. Her dad used to sing Frank Sinatra songs to her all the time, and she would sing Fly Me to the Moon when she was sent to her headmistress's office in school. On her mom's side, some of her uncles were jazz musicians, and on her dad's side, Amy's grandmother had been a singer and even dated the jazz saxophonist Ronnie Scott. Her parents divorced when she was nine, and her older brother, Alex, and her began living with her mom and uh, during the week and her dad during the weekends. And it's around this time in 1992 when Amy began attending Susie Earnshaw's theater school to get more vocal training and learn how to tap dance, since her grandmother, Cynthia, the one who had been the jazz singer, suggested she should further her vocal education. During that time, she started a short-lived rap group called Sweet and Sour with Juliet Ashby, who is one of her best friends and is one of the big people interviewed in that documentary I mentioned earlier. She and Amy would go on to live together in an apartment when Amy got her money from a record deal when she was around 19. So four years later, uh, around the age of 14 or so, Amy left Susie Earnshaw and began to attend the Sylvia Young Theater School. Sylvia Young is a performing arts school that's been around over 50 years and produced a lot of the biggest names in British music, TV, film, and theater. So it includes Billy Piper, Dua Lipa, Emma Bunton, Jesse Nelson from Little Mix, John Lee from S Club 7, Leona Lewis, Lily Cole, a bunch of the members from All Saints, and our hooligan favorite, Margot, Rita Ora. <laughs> she is worldwide. Worldwide. During her time at Sylvia Young, when Amy was around 14, she bought her first guitar after spending lots of time playing her brothers and began writing songs. She also notably attended the Brit School briefly before she dropped out at 16. And her time at the Brit School, another very famous performing arts school in London, is why many people were quick to compare Adele to Amy Winehouse when Adele started. They're probably the school's most famous alums, which also include Jessie J, Imogene Heap, Kate Nash, FKA Twigs, King Cruel, again, Leona Lewis, and our short king, Tom Holland. At 16, when she left school, she sang with a group called Bolsha Band in 2000, and she was a featured female vocalist with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. And they featured this beautiful clip of her singing Moon River with the orchestra in the documentary. Her biggest influences were Dinah Washington, Sarah Vaughn, and Tony Bennett and Thelonious Monk, in big part of because she grew up with that jazz music. 
She was also an entertainment journalist to help pay the bills, but really didn't think she would become a singer professionally. She just thought it was kind of a hobby of hers. Her best friend at the time, Tyler James, who's also a well-known singer in the UK, told um, Nick Shemansky about her. At the time, Shemansky was a lowly office worker at 19 Management, very famously Simon Fuller's company, which we talked about in our Spice Girls episode and like several other episodes. Shemansky checks her out and listens to her demo and really thinks that she's amazing and helps her get some studio time to record a more, a more professional demo, which eventually led to her getting signed to 19 Management in 2002. And Nick Shemansky became her manager around this time and asked if she had considered writing songs. She claimed she had written poems, but when he started reading those, he realized these were really personal song lyrics and that she was this really incredible writer. And while being developed at 19 Management, she's kept as kind of the secret, but she sings standards at a nearby club in Camden. Her demo was heard by Guy Mood at AMI, which is now owned by Sony, and Amy was then signed to a publishing deal that was worth well uh, to close to a quarter of a million pounds. And that's when she moved out of her mom's house and lived in her first flat with Juliet, her best friend in Camden. And she began working on tracks with Remy, who's a longtime collaborator of hers during her career, and worked with Nas, Alicia Keys, the Fugees, Fergie, Estelle, Black Thought, and Miguel. And he was eventually a producer on both of her studio albums, Frank and Back to Black. And around this time, A&R rep from Island Records, Darkest Breeze, accidentally heard her demo when the manager of another group was showing him some recent tracks that featured her as a vocalist. The manager said he couldn't share who she was, probably for label reasons. So B spent months trying to track her down because he was set on signing her. He introduced Amy Winehouse when he found her to his boss, Nick Gatfield, then the head of Island Records. There's this great video in the documentary where Amy is 18 years old playing a song with her guitar for Gatfield and the other execs. And it gave me chills. Like it's just so just her kind of arranging her bracelets and putting her hair up. And then all of a sudden just singing this like beautiful song. And they were so excited to sign her because she was so different from everyone else coming out at the time. Cause this is like 2001, 2002, when you've got pop stars and pop idol and later American idol. And it was becoming that this way where we had reality shows that really created the pop stars that would be a part of our uh, regular soundtracks rather than really this A&R really working on developing an artist and it's, and their talent. She was so different from that. And Amy's first album, Frank, was released about a year later on October 20th, 2003, and it was produced mainly by Salam Remy. She co-wrote all the songs in the album apart from the two covers, and it's this perfect jazz neo-soul hybrid album, and the production choices make a lot of sense given this is the early 2000s when it was a big kind of peak neo-soul time for artists. And it's interesting because it's a very different production and orchestration choice than Back to Black, but still a really great album that I was listening to even this morning. And in the album reviews, of course, she was compared to Dinah Washington, Nina Simone, and Sarah Vaughn, but in the same breath, they'd compare her to Macy Gray, Erica Badu, and Sade. She very much kind of stood in this middle between the R&B neo-soul world and on the same end being very much tied to that classical jazz standards uh, sound. Frank was a huge hit in the UK, nominated for two Brit Awards, and in 2004, the she and co-writer Salam Remy won the Ivor Novello Award for Best Contemporary Song for Stronger Than Me, which was the first single. There were ultimately four singles off of this album, and it sold about two million copies. 2004 is also the year she performed at Glastonbury, the V Festival, and the Montreal International Jazz Festival, but ultimately she felt kind of 
oh so so about this album because island records had really overruled some of her choices for mixes and production choices which is as you all know like a common problem artists run into with their debut major label album but amy was determined to change that with her next album which would be heavily influenced by her recent exploration into 60s girl groups and doo-wop along with her new relationship with blake fielder civil she had recorded most of frank with Salam Remy in Miami and decided she wanted to return there in 2005 to record the beginnings of what would eventually be Back to Black. She recorded five songs at Remy's Instrumental Zoo Studios, Tears Dry on Their Own, one of my favorites, Some Unholy War, Mean Mr. Jones, Just Friends, and Addicted. The Remy sessions were a lot more bare bones than some of the orchestrations uh, featured on the other songs in the album, with Winehouse singing on guitar and Remy adding in other instruments here and there with piano and main bass guitars and instrumentalist Vincent Henry playing saxophone, flute, and clarinet. You definitely hear this in some holy, unholy war, which is still a beautiful orchestration, but not the soulful uh, Mark Ronson orchestrations you'll see later on in the album. She recorded those tracks in around 10 days in Miami. And one of the sound engineers on back to black Frank Socorro recalls that when she recorded, it was only a few takes for each track. It was, she was so professional about it. She basically did this, would come in at noon and was done by 8 or 9 p.m. And in early 2006, Amy would meet Mark Ronson, the producer who would help her bring her to global stardom and be associated with what people think of when they think of Amy Winehouse and her signature sound. Winehouse and Ronson met because they were both in the same publishing company and were encouraged to meet. Amy thought he was a sound engineer when they first met in Ronson's studio in Brooklyn in, in March of 2006 because he she was expecting a much older man. And the relationship turned out to be a match made in heaven because they worked on six tracks together. Rehab, Back to Black, You Know I'm No Good, Love is a Losing Game, Wake Up Alone, and He Can Only Hold Her. The 60s soul sound you associate with all of these tracks that's super horn and bass heavy is thanks to the work Ronson did on the tracks at Daptone Records and the backing band Amy used on this album, the Dap Kings. The Dap Kings, for those of you who don't know, were the late and so fucking great Sharon Jones' backing band. Seriously, I, like I saw this band twice. Um, I saw Sharon Jones twice. It remains the greatest concert I've ever seen. Um, I saw her in her second show um, after she had gone through treatments for cancer. Unfortunately, it was the same cancer that later took her life. But um, she was absolutely incredible. And her band was just so fucking solid. Like, I can't say enough th- good things. If you ever see the Dap Kings touring or anyone from that band, you're in for a treat. Mark Ronson did everything he could to emulate as 60s a sound as possible. And upon meeting Winehouse for the first time, he wrote the backing track to Back to Black that night because she told him she'd been listening to the Shangri-Las and these girl groups and he didn't have any tracks to show her at the time. She wrote seven out of 11 songs on the album on her own and the remaining four were co-written by her. And some of those co-writing credits are really just because she sampled um, certain uh, chord progressions like Tears Dry on Their Own gave Ashford and Simpson writing credits because they wrote Ain't No Mountain High Enough, which is the chord progression that's sampled in the song. Ultimately, she completed the album in five months, which is insane because it's perfect. And it was released on October 27th, 2006. It was number one on the UK album charts for two weeks in January of 2007. And in the US, it entered number seven in the Billboard 200. It was the best-selling album in the UK in 2007. And because we love an iTunes free single of the week, it's worth noting, you know I'm no good, or was a free single. And it was the first time I believe I heard Amy Winehouse Rehab was the first single from the album, and it hit the top 10 in both the U.S. and U.K. 
Time Magazine called it the best song of 2007. And Rehab, according to Mitch Winehouse's Amy, uh, to Mitch Winehouse's memoir, and that's Amy's father, if you remember, came from a walk they went on together after she had been hospitalized. And people said she needed to go to rehab for her drinking problems. And she said, no, no, no. When it comes to anything said to the press by Mitch Winehouse or Amy's on-again, off-again partner, um, Blake Fielder Civil, it's important to take it with a grain of salt because they were often the people who hurt her the most and tried to capitalize on her fame, so fuck them. And same goes for her ex, Alex Clare, who had a big hit with his song Too Close thanks to an Internet Explorer commercial in the early 2010s, but also sold her story to the tabloids. And I think that's like quick tangent like is one of the things that breaks my heart the most about Amy Winehouse is like she was constantly ruined by the paparazzi but also the men in her life that she trusted and loved them most were often the ones who were the worst to her yeah and I mean starting with her dad and then followed by every like ain't shit dude besides Mark Ronson who like took advantage of her I mean in some ways like they mutually made each other's careers in a lot of ways yeah. So he wasn't probably looking to fuck her over. But I mean, her dad just like from Jump Street gave me such bad vibes not to be that person. But you just like mm. you, you get real like Michael Lohan. Um, mm-hmm. What's Meghan Markle's horrible dad's name? That guy. That like, guy. Just yeah. Like a dude. Who Joe, would, Joe Jackson. Yeah. Like, like all, would sell their kids out for like a fucking lollipop, you know, just insane. It's really heartbreaking. Um, In that A24 documentary, there's so much, and I'll go into it later, but there's just so many times where this man just does anything to make a fucking quick buck off of his daughter who is clearly not well. And it makes me so angry every single time. Like, I just feel like this man... In, uh, indirectly killed his daughter. Like it, I, I know it's it. It, I shouldn't say that, but like it, it feels like it when you rewatch these clips. I think it's um, pretty heavily implied by most people, and it's also why I never felt like I was going to be able to watch that doc because it's just so. You want to like reach through the screen and like do something. I, know. I just knew it was going to be too sad. So I still to this day have not seen it. When a trailer makes me cry, I'm usually going to be like, I, I can't do it. Sorry, guys. No, I totally get it. It is, it's heartbreaking. And I think it, but I think it is, I hope it is a cautionary tale for, you know, any, you know, for us and our society and how we treat people and, and for anyone, you know, I mean, ultimately she was a product of a music business that would much rather have her touring and recording and selling records because she was so profitable Mm -hmm. um, than to have her take care of herself and ensure that she can live her fucking life. It's Look, I mean, there's, I really feel like, especially in the years that this is taking place in, like Britney Spears is just in like a different genre of music or a performance of her music because like technically they're all pop in a way and like mainstream But I really you hear a lot of like similarities between like some of Amy Winehouse's life story and Britney. No, totally. I think it's a really great comparison at this time. So she obviously had released Back to Black and the second single and lead single in the U.S., You Know I'm No Good, was released in January 2007 with a remix featuring Ghostface Killa. It ultimately reached number 18 on the U.K. singles chart. Uh, the title track Back to Black was released in the UK of April 2007 and peaked at number 25. And there were two remaining singles, Tears Dry on Their Own and Love is a Losing Game, which were released but weren't as successful. 
and a deluxe edition of the album was released on November 5th, 2007 in the UK. And her debut album, Frank, was actually released in the US on November 20th of that year since it didn't really have a proper US release um, and they wanted to capitalize on her fame in the US. The album debuted at number 61 on the Billboard 200. That same year, Mark Ronson released his solo album version, which featured Ronson-produced covers of songs done by bands. On this album, Winehouse recorded a cover of the Zuton song, Valerie, and it became one of her signature songs, truly a case of what happened to Whitney Houston when she recorded Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You. The cover eclipsed the original in popularity. It peaked at number two in the UK and was nominated for a Brit Award in 2008 for British Single of the Year. On top of this nomination, we have to go over the sales, accolades, and awards Amy Winehouse racked up after Back to Black because it is astounding. Back to Black sold 16 million copies, an anomaly in a peak iTunes single-driven market. She won five out of six Grammys she was nominated for, Record of the Year for Rehab, Song of the Year, Best New Artist, Best Pop Female Vocal Performance, Best Pop Vocal Album, and she was nominated for Album of the Year. Mark Ronson won for Producer of the Year for producing the title track of Back to Black, along with Littlest Things by Lily Allen, Rehab by Amy Winehouse, um, his album version, and You Know I'm No Good. Winehouse performed at the Grammys that year and had to do so from London because she had recently entered a rehab program. And American officials initially refused her work visa and later reversed the decision, but by then it was too late to make the trip. In terms of other awards she received, at the 2007 awards, she won British Female Solo Artist and Back to Black was nominated for MasterCard British Album. In July 2007, the album was shortlisted for the 2007 Mercury Prize, but lost out to Claxon's Myths of the Near Future to tie it back to indie sleaze, making it the second time she was nominated for this prize and lost. Despite these accolades, I mentioned that she had recently begun a rehab treatment program, and this was because her substance abuse was causing her to mess up her performances. She would often forget her words, swear at the audience, show up late, and sometimes even miss concerts. She performed at Glastonbury and Lollapalooza in the summer of 2007, but the tour that followed didn't go well, and she eventually announced in November of that year that her performances and public appearances were canceled for the remainder of the year, citing doctor's advice to take a complete rest. She was the subject of constant tabloid father, appearing on the cover of every celebrity gossip magazine and front page of every gossip blog. After her time in rehab, Amy seemed to be on the mend for a while, especially with that Grammys performance and performing mostly well-received sets in the early part of 2008, including the Brit Awards and Rock and Rio Lisboa, the V's Festival, Glastonbury, and Nelson Mandela's 90th birthday party concert. Um... Some of these sets, though, were getting mixed reviews, and you were never certain if she would uh, be able to perform that evening or if she would be showing up under the influence and stop the show midway. Of course, there were people who fed off of this and wanted her to fail, and despite all this, because of all the awards it received, Back to Black was still the world's seventh biggest selling album in 2008, almost two years after its release, and actually helped Universal Music record it, music division, um, actually perform well that year as the industry as a whole was experiencing major record sales slumps. And with all the accolades for an album released two years prior, there was still a ton of buzz around when her next album would be recorded and released. And so apart from showing up as a guest vocalist on other albums, Amy hadn't been back in a recording studio since 2006. She'd agreed to form a group with Questlove, but issues delayed them working together through because of visas. And Salam, Remy, and her had begun working on a few songs for that project, but they never really came to fruition. 
There were photos of her surfacing throughout the year where she was clearly at an unhealthy weight and appeared to be under the influence. In 2009, she took a break and spent time with friends in St. Lucia for a few months. But of course, um, and she Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. She was still drinking at the time, which was not great, but she was no longer doing hard drugs, according to her friends. Um, but her dad's an asshole, and of course, he showed up with a camera crew and tried to make money off of her um, selling off video footage and trying to get her to sign autographs or to take pictures with fans. Her team was putting out statements that she was beginning to work on new material and even learning to play the drums. And eventually Island claimed a new album would be released in 2010. And the truth was there was some recording happening, but it was kind of still up in the air. She said that the next album would be released no later than January 2011. And But meanwhile, Mark Ronson said he hadn't started recording anything on the album. Despite the signs that she was not fit to be performing in the state, she continued Despite the signs that she was not fit to be performing in the state she was in, uh, they continued into 2011, and there were a lot of enablers who wanted her back in the studio and back on stage, and she began what would be her final tour in June of 2011. She performed a few tour dates, but basically ended the tour 10 days later due to multiple issues. She made her last public appearance on July 20th, 2011 at the Roundhouse in Camden and joined her goddaughter. (coughs) sorry, who was performing on stage. She was found unresponsive by her bodyguard on July 23rd, 2011. Even typing these notes, I started crying at this point because the last thing she ever recorded was ultimately a realization of one of her biggest dreams coming true. Wow. Sorry. (laughs) Um, She got to record a duet of the standard body and soul with her idol, Tony Bennett for his duets two album. And if you watch the footage from the recording session, Amy keeps thinking she's messing up, and Tony is incredibly encouraging. It's really bittersweet to watch, knowing she probably doesn't think she's good enough to be in that room, and Bennett knows she's more than capable to be as equal on the recording. And the single was released on September 20th, 2011, on what would have been her 28th birthday. And that's Amy Winehouse, and I just got very emotional. (laughs) Are you okay? I'm okay. (laughs) That's a lot. Yeah. I'd forgotten about that Tony Bennett clip. Yeah. And what what could have been? It could have been. I know. Could have been instead of Gaga, it could have been her and Tony Bennett doing jazz standards at the MGM. It is. You bring up a really valid, uh, an important point, which is I think that there are um, that 
Not to say Lady Gaga wouldn't have been famous without Amy Winehouse, but I think that there are artists like Lady Gaga out there who had more of a chance in getting signed and being released because other major labels had taken a chance on someone like an Amy Winehouse who didn't fit the traditional mold. Totally. Yeah. Like abroad who's into standards, you know, who can like play piano, but also has like mainstream um, marketability and appeal. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that they, um, I mean, they're all kind of like a part of the same ecosystem, especially like when you think about the timing of like when Gaga first got popular, it was like right as like this like British, um, like British indie solo artist wave. It was like, that was like ending with like Lily Allen and Amy Winehouse. And then like, and then you had, what was her first, was it Love Game was her first big single? Oh, it was Just Dance, I think. It was Just Dance. Okay, thank you. I was like, I cannot remember the order in which they came out, but that was like around, they were like, they were sort of passing ships a little bit. So I do think in a lot of ways, the the gals that we're talking about today have a lot to do with uh, Lady Gaga's current success as much as like Adele's, which, you know, I think they're all kind of contemporaries. Yeah. I'm going to take a sip too. Yeah, I got to take a sip because it's like, you know, I tried to keep it short, but <clears throat> and I even like, you know, I trimmed some stuff, but there's only so much you can do, right? Like these women were living out loud. And I suppose if you were to chronicle a lot of people our age <laughs> during, you know, the years of which they were coming up, we probably also have like a lot of questionable stuff <laughs> and zero accolades, but with no accolades to offset them uh, that we would have to be covering. But here we are. So we're going to talk about Lily Allen in a section that I've titled Lil Allen, <laughs> because we're going to talk about <laughs> her before she was a biggin. Uh, Lily Allen was born Lily Rose Beatrice Allen, which is just like so like very British (laughs) name. English. (laughs) Yes. I feel like I need to put a hat on you and apply tons of sunscreen just reading that out loud. Yes. (laughs) She just celebrated her birthday on May 2nd. Um, So happy birthday to Lily Allen. And she was raised in Hammersmith, West London with her parents, Keith Allen, who is a Welsh-born actor, and her mom, Alison Owen, who was a British film producer. She's a middle child, which should explain, you know, kind of like a lot. Um, She has an older sister and a younger brother, Alfie, who is the subject of her song, Alfie, and he also might know him from Game of Thrones. He's an actor. Yes. He's been in some other stuff. He was like a bad guy in something I saw. Maybe it was a John Wick. Yeah, it was John Wick. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. He plays bad guys a lot. He's just got the face for it. Lily was briefly a child actor when she starred in an episode of the comic strip Presents that her dad wrote. But by the time she turned four, her parents split up and her siblings and her mom moved to Islington. Lily's mom, Allison, seemed like a pretty cool chick because during their time in Islington, she dated a noted British comedian named Harry Enfield and Joe Strummer from The Clash, who became very close with Lily in the process. So you mean to tell me she grew up in Hammersmith, the subject of a Clash song, and then her almost stepdad was Joe Strummer? He kind of like was a little godfather because he's he I cut some of the stuff down, but he, he like comes up a little bit in her career. Wow. I know. She attended 13 schools and was expelled from several of them for drinking and smoking. When Alan was 11, she was a music student at the University of Victoria and someone heard her singing Wonderwall by Oasis on the school playground. And they were so impressed that they decided to have her perform 
um, at like a live talent show. And she sang Baby Mine from Disney's Dumbo. And that was her first taste of being a live performer. And she wanted more. Eventually, she dropped out of school at 15, not wanting to, quote, spend a third of her life preparing to work for the third of her life, to work for a third of her life, and then to set herself up with a pension for the last third of her life. So she got in on a little thing called MySpace, but not before she met her man. And this is another like, I can't believe I'm saying the sentence out loud. She met her first manager, George Lamb, in Ibiza when she was on vacation with her family. (laughs) There was more to that because she was like dealing drugs, but I, I feel like I didn't need to get yeah, into yeah. all of that. But like that's she met him in Ibiza with, <laughs> on a family vacation. And she first started to record vocals for a song that her dad wrote um, for a, a band called Mike Bassett, colon, England manager called On Me Head, Not Off Me Head in 2001. And then she was featured in another song the following year for her father's other group, Fat Les, <laughs> called Who Invented Fish and Chips? She started to work with music producers and recorded a demo, but she was rejected by a bunch of labels, which she attributed to her drinking and also being the daughter of Keith Allen. She eventually used her dad's connections to get signed to London Records in 2002, but when the executive who signed her got fired, the label lost interest and she was left without release and she left without releasing any music. But a lot of the music that she was recording at the time was written by her dad. Which has a more like um, a folksy sort of air to it, which kind of explains some like folksy tinges on her like later albums. Oh, yes. I see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So at this point, she's sort of like given up on music. She's become discouraged and she decided to, to study horticulture and become a florist, but then changed her mind again and returned to music. She started to write songs while her manager introduced her to other production duos like Future Cut in 2004 and they got together and worked in a small studio in the basement of an office building. A year later, Lily got signed to Regal Recordings and they gave her £25,000 to produce an album, though they told her up front they were unable to provide much support because they were about to release X and Y by Coldplay and Demon Days by Gorillaz, which were like huge, huge albums. So she decided to create an account on MySpace and she started posting her demos there. And she recorded a bulk of them in November of 2005. The demos ended up attracting thousands of listeners, and a 500 limited edition 7-inch vinyl of LDN were rush-released, reselling for almost as much as 40 pounds a pop. In the age of the mixtape, which was exactly this time, she made two, my first mixtape and my second mixtape, which she uploaded both to MySpace to promote her work. She continued to amass a bunch of MySpace friends, so much so that she attracted the attention of mainstream publications, like getting the cover of the music section of The Observer. The MySpace success convinced her label to allow her to have more creative control over her album and to use some of the songs that she had written instead of working with mainstream producers that they set her up with. Lily decided to work with a producer named Greg Kurskin and Mark Ronson, finishing the rest of her album in just two weeks. Her debut album, All Right Still, was released in July of 2006. Most of the tracks had already had some sort of popularity on MySpace, like her singles Smile, LDN, Knock Em Out, and Alfie. In September 2006, Smile was available in the U.S. on iTunes, and by December, it started to pick up steam stateside. Then Entertainment Weekly decided to name All Right Still one of the top 10 albums, even though the whole album wasn't quite available in the U.S. in 2006. But by January 2007, All Right Still was released stateside and ended up at number 20 on the Billboard 200. By the following January, the album had sold 520,000 copies in the U.S. and 920,000 copies in the U.K., In summer of 2007, she replaced MIA at Glastonbury and decided to reunite two members of the specials, which, 
Linval Golding, the guitarist and singer of the specials, would later attribute the whole band reuniting in 2009 as thanks to Lily Allen. I have a Glastonbury specials comment because Amy Winehouse also performed with the specials at Glastonbury uh, like two years after or something like that. Yeah, they were on a lot of the same music bills, which like I For can't. Sure. How lucky were we at the time? Seriously. 2007 was quite a banger year for her, though, because she also appeared in the concert for Diana held at Wembley Stadium in London to celebrate the life of Princess Diana. And she sang LDN and Smile. In 2008, she won a songwriting award for Smile uh, through the BMI. Post All Right still, but not quite into It's Not You, It's Me. Where after All Right Still's release, her record company EMI was taken over by Terra Firma and she changed management companies to somewhere else but kept the same team. So at the urging of her newish recording company, she decided to like try out new producers and new writers, but that wasn't working. So she got back together with All Right Still writer producer Greg Kurskin. She posted two new demos on her MySpace page and planned to release a mixtape to give her fans an idea of what the direction was. But then she canceled her appearance in 2008 at the Isle of Wight Festival to keep her second album on track. But then some pictures of her being drunken blouseless at the Cannes Film Festival made the rounds at the same time, to which I say, let the lady live. She also had a pretty public dust up with Elton John at the Glamour Awards. 2008 was no one's best year. Okay, like, let's just all be a little bit more forgiving. So we're at not it's not you it's not me was supposed to come out in early 2008 but as you just heard it didn't quite work out that way because between the creative issues she was also dealing with a miscarriage but since we live in a capitalist society EMI is like okay well we're just going to tell you when your album's going to be released so the label decided to start marketing the album in the fall of 2008 by uh, launching a online game called Escape the Fear to support her single The Fear The game blew up, and by the time the album was released in February of 2009, it had been played two million times. What? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. It's Not Me, It's You was released in February of 2009 and debuted at number one in the UK, Canada, Australia, and number five in the US. The album did really well, well enough, because EMI was definitely riding on the success of this because they were not living up to their earnings expectations. But their first single, The Fear, was number one for four weeks in the UK after its release. And the second single, Not Fair, reached number nine. She began the It's Not Me, It's You tour in March and toured for the next two years until September 2010. Her work on this album with Greg Kurskin earned her a Songwriter of the Year Award in 2010 at the Ebor Ivor Novello Awards. In addition, she won with Kirsten for Best Song Musically and Lyrically and Most Performed Work for The Fear. In October of 2010, she won her second BMI for Pop Song for The Fear. And to like backtrack it a little bit, though, in September 2009, though, through all of this success, she announced that she was considering an acting career and that she wasn't really interested in renewing her record contract and that she had no plans to make new music. But then a year later in September of 2010, She gave her last performance for that would be for about two and a half years when she supported Muse at Wembley Stadium. And in the following month, she decided that, well, in the following month, she started to write songs for the musical that would eventually become Bridget Jones's Diary, which was going to open in London's West End in 2012. But by June of 2012, she confirmed that she was back in the studio with her old pal Greg working on new stuff. And over a year later, she released a cover of Keen's Somewhere Only We Know, which is a really lovely cover if you haven't listened to it in a long time. I listened to it today. It's still great. And she did that for the John Lewis Christmas advert, where a portion of the song sales were donated to Save the Children's Philippine Typhoon Appeal Campaign. 
The single reached number one in the UK charts as soon as it was released in November. And in November 2013, she premiered the video for her new song, Hard Out Here, on her official website. Hard Out Here was released the following week, and it entered the UK singles chart at number nine, giving her two simultaneous top 10 hits. In December of 2013, she announced that she was one of the new signees of uh, Warner Brothers Records through Parlophone, which is a part of Universal Music Group. Her first single off of what would be Sheezus was Air Balloon, and it premiered on the BBC One radio in January of 2014 and was later released in March. And Sheezus was released in May of 2014 and debuted at number one at the UK album chart, giving her two consecutive number one albums. Sheezus was a little bit of a departure of what she was used to. And even though she worked with good old Greg on this one, she brought in some new producers like Shellback, DJ Dahi, and Fraser T. Smith. Upon the release, Sheezus was given kind of like mixed reviews from music critics, but it still did well commercially. She returned to Glastonbury stage that year as well. But following Sheezus in 2014, she said that she experienced an identity crisis. She no longer enjoyed the music that she was being asked to create, and she believed people in the music industry were trying to control her choices. When she was interviewed at the time, she confirmed that she was working on a new album, which mainly was going to deal with herself, her relationship with her children, and the breakdown of her marriage and substance abuse with Mark Ronson. But in late 2017, Lily uploaded numerous songs online in preparation for the album, including Family Man and Trigger Bang, featuring a rapper named Greg Giggs. In January of 2018, she announced her new album was going to be called No Shame, and by June it was released, and it would later go on to be nominated for a Mercury Prize. No Shame takes influence more from like a dancehall reggae, um, a little bit like clash sounding music, and it features more conventional style, confessional style lyrics that discuss the breakdown of her marriage, of friendships, maternal guilt, substance abuse, along with social and political issues. No Shame was met with generally positive reviews from music critics. The album peaked at number eight on the UK album chart, and it reached number 40 in New Zealand, and it became her fourth consecutive album in the top 10 in Australia. In October of 2018, though, she embarked on her No Shame tour, and for funsies, here is a set list from her show that is coincidentally uh, my wedding anniversary, and I just think it's like a really fun set list. So she's got, we're going to open with Come On Then, Waste, LDN, My One, what are you waiting for? Knock em out. Lost my mind. Smile. Party line, which was an unreleased song. I'm always on a mountain when I fall, which is a Merle Haggard cover. Deep end. A Leaky Lee cover. Pushing up daisies. Three. Everything to feel something. The fear. Higher. Family man. Who'd have known? Not fair. And then she has an encore of apples. Trigger bang and closes out on the iconic fuck you. I am so happy you brought up Knock Em Out. That might be my favorite song on. All right, still. I still absolutely love it. Such a banger. It's and it's also extremely funny. Like I know that she really she kind of wanted to be a rapper, but she doesn't have the skill level for it, but she does have like the humor. And so that's the thing that always stuck out the most to me about all of her songs that I related the most to is that they're extremely funny. As she's talking Mm -hmm. about like serious shitty things, but she does it in a funny way. Like I'll never forget, like I think knock them out. No, it was. I think it's Nan. You're a window shopper. Came on when we had like one of the oh, heads great of like, the, the British <laughs> company come to like check out our store, and they're like, "What's this?" And you have to like sit there and make her like listen to the lyrics. And I was like, "Uh huh." I mean, you guys sent it, so I don't know what you want me to do here. <laughs> <laughs> don't 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 get mad at me. I'm just the messenger. I literally just work here. <laughs> yeah. 
But speaking of uh, the, the closing song on her set list, in my best Dorinda Medley voice, this is extremely important. She makes an extremely special appearance during Olivia Rodrigo's Glastonbury set in 2022 to sing Fuck You With Her. And I, if you haven't seen the clip, it's extremely delightful. And I really appreciated seeing her up on stage, which she later said that she was unsure if she could perform on a stage like that sober after she'd been nearly three years sober. Now we're getting into a section I call Lily of the Stage and Screen. She made an appearance as a lady-in-waiting in in 1998's film Elizabeth, which was co-produced by her mother. She also signed a one-series contract to present her own BBC3 TV show titled Lily Allen and Friends, based on her ability to have so many MySpace friends since it helped launch her career, and it included guests like Mark Ronson, Joanna Page, James Corden... Lauren Laverne, uh, Rosen Murphy, Lewis Walsh, and Danny Dyer. You were going to say something? You know my face for James Corden. I just... Oh, mm. yeah. But did you ever watch <laughs> um, Lily and Friends? Because I did watch a couple of episodes. I think I might have at one point. I'm not quite sure, but I'll have to check it out after this. Because I think what I'm realizing is that I thought I did, but really I'm just thinking of one of Alexa, Alexa Chung's like four shows that she had during this time. <laughs> Seriously, that we're all kind of like formatted in the same way. Yes. <laughs> the show attracted only 2% of the total multi-channel audience, despite a high-profile nationwide marketing campaign. But because of her popularity among their target audience, BBC3 announced that they were going to renew Lily Allen and Friends for a second season. But then later on, their their controller, Danny Cohen, said that they were not going to air Lily Allen and Friends in 2009 as scheduled programmed. She appeared as Elizabeth Taylor in How to Build a Girl in July in 2019, which also co-starred her brother, Alfie. Yes. That's a very funny movie, by the way, with Beanie Feldstein. Yeah. It's based I like on the, Caitlin. I was going to say, I like the book. I just never got around to watching the movie. I watched – it was a plain movie for me, and I actually had a lot of fun watching it. Uh, Beanie Feldstein was great in it, as was Alfie Allen. Plain movie sounds and feels extremely correct. <laughs> Yes. In June of 2021, she played the lead role of Jenny in the West End play 222 A Ghost Story, which I don't know if you've ever seen the movie of that, but um, I hope the play is better. I mean, I know <laughs> the play is better because in 2022, she received a Laurence Olivier Award nomination for Best Actress um, for her performance in 222 A Ghost Story and also won a What's On Stage Award for her performance. In April of this year, she starred in Sharon Horgan's comedy drama Dreamland for Skymax, which is a UK channel and a UK program. It was developed from a short film starring Morgana Robinson that aired in 2017. Um, as for current music, in 2020, she had said that she was working on a concept album, but no follow ups since. And now we're going to get into a portion that I've simply titled Some Fucked Up Shit. Just so that you know that this is a section where we're gonna some fucked up shit is, is, has happened, and I've put it all just in one place, and I was letting the music and the career be its own thing, but now we can no longer avoid it. So she had a stalker for seven years, which like rang some few distant bells. But her stalker Alex Gray first made contact with her in 2008 when he sent her a series of tweets claiming he had written her song "The Fear," and it was under the t the Twitter handle at Lily Allen is R I P which is nice and terrifying. He then sent her threatening letters to her house, to her clothing shop that she owned with her sister, her record label, her manager's office. In October 2015, he sent an email to his mother stating he was planning on murdering a celebrity and went on to spend the night in Lily Allen's backyard, broke into her bedroom oh while she slept, and ultimately forced her to move. Oh, my God. 
Lily had strongly criticized the Metropolitan Metropolitan Police for their inaction, which included refusal to show her a picture of her stalker, which is like insane. Like, how is she supposed to know that she's in danger if she doesn't know what he looks like? Oh, my God. A panic alarm, but then like demanded for it back and then refused to believe that she was being stalked or that her stalking incidents were even linked, which is just like, I mean, women, we all we all know. Right. We all this is why people don't come forward. It's a great. It's the most fucked up of equalizers, but it really is the equalizer, regardless of how famous, how much money you have. You still have to live this life in which your life might be in jeopardy, but no man is going to take you very seriously. Right. It's sort of like, oh, well, you just need to calm down, ma'am. Truly. Luckily, in April 2016, Gray was convicted of burglary and harassment. Lily said that she isolated herself following the stalking incidents, which seems fair, believing that, quote, nobody would take me seriously because the police weren't taking me seriously. This coincided with her divorce in which she said that everyone sided with her ex and her album No Shame became her outlet for her issues. She's also been quite outspoken about her body image throughout her career. In an interview for an ITV program, she mentioned she, quote, used to sleep for days so that she didn't eat and that her relationship with her body in her 20s was, quote, not great. When asked about being influenced by the pressure of the music industry to look a certain way, to sell records, she replied that due to her defiant way of dealing with these unrealistic expectations, she was often criticized far more than the average musician. In January of 2021, she gave an interview to discuss how she became addicted to Adderall in 2014 in order to lose weight before opening for Miley Cyrus on her Bangers tour. She got sober when she was tempted to try heroin. In November of 2010, she took legal action against Associated Newspapers, the parent company of the Daily Mail, after the Daily Mail published photographs of her at her home, citing invasion of privacy and copyright infringement. But on a lighter side, in September of 2018, she published her memoir, My Thoughts Exactly, and it was nominated for a future book campaign of the year, and it is one of nine books listed under show business category of The Guardian of Best Books of 2018. And to wrap things up, we're going to take a quick little dip into personal life territory. She dated chemical brother Ed Simon for five tumultuous sounding months, so much so that she said after they broke up, she spent three weeks in a psychiatric clinic due to depression. But in July of 2009, she began dating her future ex-husband, Sam Cooper, a builder and decorator. And in August of 2010, Alan announced that she was pregnant with her and Cooper's first child and later confirmed it was a boy that was due in early 2011. But in October, six months into her pregnancy, she contracted a viral infection, infection, which caused her to suffer a stillbirth, and she was hospitalized afterwards. She was later diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder after the stillbirth, which, like, yep, yeah, that tracks. Yeah. In December of 2010, her and Cooper got engaged in Bali and later married in June of 2011 in England. The designer of her dress later confirmed that she was several months pregnant on her wedding day. Lily later gave birth to her daughter, Ethel Mary, in 2011 and gave birth to her second daughter, Marnie Rose, in 2013. In September of 2018, though, she posted on Instagram that she had had sex with female escorts in 2014 while married to Cooper and on tour promoting Jesus. She included details of these events in her book, My Thoughts Exactly, and said that she made the Instagram post because Daily Mail was planning to publish an article about it saying that, quote, I'm not proud, but I'm not ashamed. She has linked the events to her postnatal depression and the breakdown of her marriage. Lily has criticized the press for portraying the events as, quote, a lesbian prostitute sex romp. In June of 2018, though, it was publicly announced that a friendly divorce had been finalized between her and her ex and that they would share custody of their children. A fun little tidbit from her book, My Thoughts Exactly, she wrote that she had an affair with Liam Gallagher when he was married to Nicole Appleton. 
Who went to, to school with Amy Winehouse from because Nicole Appleton was in All Saints. Mm-hmm. The circle of life. God. But there is a happy ending. She began dating David Harbour in 2019, making the red carpet debut at the 26th Annual St- Screen Actors Guild Award. And a day after they obtained a marriage certificate and got married in September 2020 in Las Vegas, and it was officiated by an Elvis impersonator while her two children present. The couple share a beautiful home in Brooklyn, which I strongly encourage you to watch their AD tour of. Always. <laughs> and that, my friends, is Lily Allen. For it, you know, I'm glad we went in this order uh, because ultimately, like, I feel like she has the life she wanted in the end, which makes me really happy. Um, yeah. I, this was nice to see that she, after having so many horrible things happen, has a happy ending. And David Harbour seems to be like a good stepdad. He gives me good stepdad vibes. I don't know. They seem like <laughs> a sweet couple and a cute yeah. family. And seeing yeah. her, I mean, I think when she got married, I remember it was like, I mean, at least in our corner of the internet, kind of like went viral or whatever. I remember seeing the pictures and feeling very heartened. I was heartened by that. <laughs> I was happy I was for her. We- same. I would I would wholeheartedly agree. Uh, do you have any final thoughts before we end this episode? No. I mean, these are just two incredible, timeless artists. And I'm so glad, even though some of it was like difficult to talk about and sad, that we have their music going forward forever. Absolutely. I think you ended on a great point. So with that, we want to say thank you so much for once again joining us on our podcast. Uh, You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it may be. And while you're there checking us out, if you would like to leave us a review and rating, we would very much appreciate it. Additionally, as you may have heard, we have a Patreon and you should check that out. For five bucks a month, you get a bonus piece of content. And uh, usually it's an episode that is tied to one of the episodes we've put out on the main feed. So if you're really interested in that, we did a bonus on Indie Sleaze uh, that featured some of our honorable mentions that didn't quite make the cut of the main episode. We've done one on the Titanic miniseries. Anyway, you should go check that out. You can go to patreon.com slash old millennials pod. Additionally, if you enjoy social media, we're there. Uh, we have an Instagram and Facebook at the old millennials pod. And individually, if Twitter remains a thing, when you hear this, we are both on Twitter. You can find me at Emily A. Bajan. And you can find me at Marge, she wrote. And finally, we stand in solidarity with the Writers Guild of America in case you had any questions about that. Union strong, baby. Pay writers, please. Thank you. Forever. What would be your picket line slogan? You know how we've seen some good ones. Like, don't. Oh, yeah. We'll spoil yeah. some fashion for you. How much could a writer cost Michael? $10. Yeah. Remember heroes. I think that would be mine. <laughs> mine would be, remember that second season of Friday Night Lights? Remember when Jesse Plemons killed a guy? <laughs> we wouldn't even have Meth Damon without I know. writers. Give me a break. That's so funny. <sighs> but yes, we stand in solidarity with writers and unions and the WGA. And until next time, we say bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.